Welcome to Bristol, Bristol's Mental Wellbeing Festival. Thanks for all for joining. I'm George, I'm a fourth year medical student um, and also one of the co-founders of Project Talk. So we're lucky enough this evening to be joined by Mike. Um, Mike, I'm never actually sure how to introduce you. You're a sort of man of many talents. So if you'd be kind enough to help me out say a few words um, about sort of your work within mental health services and within university, that would be fab. Sure, it's, uh, it's good to be with you all. Um, I do lots of different things, um, which I won't bore you with, but just the easiest way to understand is um, I work um, strategically and both on the ground with regards to mental health services and a special focus on trauma um, in psych and also within education environments too. So I kind of float between all of those things doing sort of strategic advising on implementing trauma-informed practice and care, um, and then also work within crisis teams on suicide prevention as well. Mm. So. Yes, I don't have one job title, which leads to no end of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> a busy man, nonetheless. It's been a really tough year for all of us, hasn't it? And Mike, obviously, as you said, you work pretty tirelessly to support uh, not just students, but so many people have experienced you know, trauma and grieving and some, you know, some people in quite significant distress. But I'm just wondering if you could give us a bit of an outline of you know, how it's been over the past year or so for you and and what kind of the impact, what kind of impacts of the pandemic we're kind of already seeing in, in your work? There is always a delay in me answering the question because I always write it down so I can make sure I, uh, I answer it. Um, okay. So how's the last year been? Um, I'm not gonna lie, it's been tough. Um, I think um, on staff and a lot of colleagues um, especially um, those working in ICU um, um, and acute settings and also those working in social care. Um, you know, obviously education, um, teachers have had it, you know, really rough as well um, in terms of the amount of support the schools have had to offer. Um, and obviously in psych, um, it's been incredibly intense and challenging too. Um, I think one of the things that's really strange is that I think many for many staff members, um, we've had to sort of exist in two spaces and two sort of worlds really. So I can be on shift in a day and see lots of different things that are happening, um, and then think about what happens after the pandemic has you know maybe come towards an end or is in its closing stages and we're looking at an endemic, um, and and think about oh gosh when that finishes we've got so much to do in terms of backlog workloads and all those things but then also step out into public with everybody else and go I can't wait for the restrictions to end <laughs> so it trying to to do both is is quite strange sometimes um uh, there is a lot of exhaustion and um, because of the nature of the amount of work that we have to do and it's not just the um uh it's I, I liken it to bandwidth so you know the bandwidth that people have to do tasks every day as well as then on top of um you know the, the workload that we already had and that was increasing in volume is is challenging what are the effects we're starting to see so there are a number of things grief is a significant one um and grief has been i think a theme every single day um for people that i've that i've met and that i've spent time with and um, both in and out of services the other thing which has become quite um, prominent as well, the amount of people who are feeling very anxious about the different stages of both isolation and then um, reintegrating and all of those things. One thing that's been really interesting, actually, though, is that a lot of people 
who have you know who were struggling pre-pandemic and who were finding it quite distressing anyway ordinary life have also commented on how they sort of feel that other people are now in the same boat as them as well and that's been quite interesting so they feel that people have actually stepped into their world for a period of time because they find the world quite overwhelming a lot of the time and now there's more people in their boat so that's been interesting um you know, we should paint a picture and, and give some facts out there because um, there's lots of social media posts that fly around. Um, we haven't seen a rise in suicide um, in terms of, you know, suicide rates. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't people who are in significant distress because we know that there are. Um, so I think the, the picture that I paint at the moment is that there are a lot of people in need and who are struggling. But I think we're still trying to identify what those needs are and my biggest concern isn't just the people that are contacting services and saying we're struggling. It's also the people that aren't. Um, and, and that, for me, is a big effect. So one of the big effects we've seen, especially in primary case of GPs and, 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 and all of that setting, we see that there are a lot of people who know how overwhelmed the NHS is. And so they're actually not getting in touch with the services um, and that worries me as well, because then I think, well, actually, what state are people going to be in um, when we actually do eventually get to them? So there's lots of different things that are starting to unfold. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that it is absolutely like, you know, a war zone every day. In the initial stages, um, it, it was very much like that because we weren't sure what was going on and things were quite chaotic. Now things have calmed down quite a lot. We've got a little bit of a flow and routine. We know what's going on. Um, but yeah, it's it's really tough, and I think some of my time um, has been supporting um, ICU colleagues um, and sitting with them um, and talking about the things that they've seen and witnessed and how that's affected them. So obviously, we've got a lot of people who've been profoundly affected, um, but also people who are still having to juggle a huge workload. Um, so yeah, it's it's really multifaceted. There's lots of different things that are happening, um, and I think it's really difficult to make predictions at this point. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's hard. Now, yeah, like you say, I think there are. I've noticed in in my own sort of you know, as a med student, there are so many people who haven't have prevented coming forward because they just know how overwhelming the NHS is. And I think my my concern is with this sort of narrative. Um, we've kind of particularly got it at the university at the moment that actually everything is so overwhelmed. Um, people think, oh, I'm not I'm not bad enough to need support. I'll, I'll, let the, the support go to those people who really need it. Um, I don't know if you saw and do any work with the, with the team at Suicide Prevention Bristol, but they have said that they've seen a, like a really big increase in the last couple of weeks of people experiencing quite significant distress. And I just do you think we're seeing sort of a, a bit of a crest of crest of the wave now, or do you think there's there's more to come? Yeah. So. Yeah. I think what we were told um, at the start of COVID was that we would have, um, that we would see the needs rise straight away and that there would be a huge amount of people in distress almost immediately. And of course, there were people that were distressed immediately. But one thing that, and, and I got criticised quite a lot for it, um, one thing I said at the start was that we wouldn't see the effects immediately and that actually all the evidence from around the world from different environments. Um, so for instance, you know, countries where there's been environmental disasters where people have lost homes, 
um, and you know, lots of adverse events have happened. The evidence actually, and the studies from those areas says very clearly that people actually struggle when they get to the point of pandemic fatigue. Mm. Um, and that tends to kick in probably around a year later um, as to what's happening because everybody's so busy just surviving and regulating and just trying to cope. And then what happens is that people start to contemplate what's happened to them and how they've been affected. And it's at that point that things start to get difficult. So the question at the moment, that, um, sorry, the question you just asked me about, are we seeing um, a bit of a, a bit of a wave now and a bit of a curve? I would, I would say that there is evidence in my day-to-day um, and also from conversations with services too, that there is starting to see that emergence of need. Um, mm. But we should also be clear that that need won't all arise at the same time. It will probably arise over a period of time. So people will possibly, you know, I know a lot of people who will probably get to the end of the pandemic um, and then drop everything and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe all of that happens because they just started to process it. So it's the same when something happens to you on an individual. So take COVID aside, you know, something might have happened to you at the age of 13, but you just cope and you just survive. And it might not be till 36 until that penny drops, um, until you actually go, oh my gosh, that actually happened to me. And I never stopped to think about it and reflect. So it's actually when people stop and reflect sometimes that that, that distress can set in. But also, obviously, there are people who are you know, fatigued and, and are really struggling because they've been coping with a, with a huge level of distress for a long period of time. So I would say that we've got to think about this as a long-term picture because what will happen is after this is finished, We'll, we'll, there'll be lots of different things that start to kick in in terms of community events, political events, social economics, all of those things. And, and it will be over the next couple of years that we'll have to think about how we recover from this collectively and, and actually understand that the next two years, probably, from all the evidence that we've looked at, are going to suggest that the needs are going to emerge within that next 24 months rather than the next couple. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting seeing actually that a lot seems to emerge be emerging as things are opening back up and just ha- just as we think things would be getting better they seem to be actually highlighting more problems i can't remember where i came across it i came across a, a, a bit of an anecdote of somebody who whilst sort of everyone was in lockdown they weren't allowed to see anyone um they felt quite comfortable but then as soon as every everyone's going out to pubs again and seeing each other actually kind of highlighted how lonely they were feeling do you think there's a lot of cases sort of like that yeah there are and i think i think um one of the other things i've been made aware of as well quite quite a lot of the time is how how difficult the the um dynamics are within families sometimes around covid restrictions Mm. um i know myself many of my colleagues have had to have very very difficult conversations with family and friends, because we are ultimately, obviously, working with people, patients, vulnerable people sometimes, um, who don't have the level of, you know, um, support and safety and reassurance that we do. So obviously, our thought is not just for us; it's about them too. And mm-hmm. so that, you know, people, the introduction of hugging next week is a really yeah. interesting one because a lot of people I've spoken to this week have said there's no way I feel comfortable in doing that. Mm. And also there's a lot of people who've gone, I didn't like hugging anyway. (laughs) So actually I'm quite good with things the way they are, thanks. Um, 
So that's interesting to see as we start to go back to, to normal, there are going to be people who will see that re-emergence of anxiousness around certain things. But also there will be people like myself who will go, I would absolutely love to give you a hug, but sadly, you know, I still have to think about a number of different people in my care on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably going to have to opt out, I'm afraid. Um, and that sometimes is not easy for people to navigate, is it? If family and friends mm-hmm. are saying, well, what are you talking about? Don't be silly. We're allowed to yeah. do it. So it's hard for people to navigate that. So I think people's anxiety levels about opening back up and just because somebody said it's okay to do so doesn't mean you feel it's okay. Yeah. Um, so I think we need to be really mindful of how we in- reintroduce people back into those spaces. And we need to think about it gradually and over a period of time too. Yeah, I think it's been surprisingly hard to be the one that does stick to the rules. And, you know, it's all very easy to, to say, oh, yeah, go on then. But actually to be the one person that says, no, this is this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to actually follow the rules. And yeah, I didn't expect it to be that hard, but that, I think that's definitely something I've found. I agree. And, and it's I, I just speaking for myself, um, there have been a number of people I've had very, you know, not serious, but to the point conversations with. Um, because, you know, I, I can't sit there and tell other people to follow the rules in the NHS whilst I'm breaking them myself. That puts me in a place of complete hypocrisy and I would never do that. Um, but, you know, me popping around for a brew, you know, into somebody's house for five minutes because they think it's OK. <laughs> I, I can't yeah. take that justification, I'm afraid. So it, yeah. it's very hard for people who are trying to do their very best. But I also I also do understand and I want to make it clear. I do understand how hard it is for people when they just want to see other people and they just need that dose of interaction. Mm. I do completely get it. Um, and I think one thing that's very much been overlooked in this is people who were shielding. Um, and who haven't been able yet to have their full restrictions lifted because there are a lot of young people who have got, you know, lots of autoimmune difficulties or lots of other complexities in in their health conditions that mean that they can't do it or they've got to care for somebody else. Um, And so I think we've got to be really mindful about how those people are going to be feeling because they haven't been sat down watching TV for the whole of the lockdown. They've been really concerned about their health. And, And that in itself, having to sit with that level of stress every day is draining. So we have to be mindful about that too. Yeah, I think, you know, on the subject of isolation, I guess that's where it speaks for a lot of people, but, but specifically, you know, particularly some of the university students that have just, just sort of started at Bristol and other places this year. You know, that really comes into its own because they just haven't been meeting people and stuff like that. Um, I know that I don't know if you've seen it, but the Royal College of Psychiatrists have released an analysis that says that, you know, they think that that sort of children and young people are are going to be kind of bearing the brunt of what we're seeing um, in terms of mental health and mental distress when it comes to the pandemic. Why do you you sort of agree with that? And why would you think young people are so heavily affected? I I would say that... I also think that elderly people um, have also been Mm -hmm. significantly affected. Um, And so I wouldn't just say it's exclusive by any means, but I would say that part of my experience on a daily basis is yes. Um, I would agree that they have been extremely adversely affected. And there's a number of reasons. I mean, I, I spent the last couple of days with a lot of new parents 
Um, and if you think about it, you know, when you're a new parent, you the first thing you think about is, you know, how you can spread spits and share that joy with other people, um, you know, who you can get to help out so you can sleep, um, all of those different things. And for many people, that's been entirely impossible for them to do. They've not been able to share, you know, their, their, their children with others, um, literally in terms of looking after them, but both, you know, and also in terms of the feeling of joy. Um, so that's been hard. And there are lots of things that have happened in children's lives that are really significant. So we take education for a moment. Young people's education in particular at university level, I've been really concerned about. Um, mainly freshers who are first year coming in, living in halls, who have not had the ability to be able, like you said, to meet other people from their course. Um, they've got, you know, they didn't have freshers weeks, so they weren't able to go around all the different societies and meet people and, you know, sign up to everything and then eventually meet your tribe and find out where you fit. They, they've not had that process. Um, and also, on top of that, they've had to sort housing out for next year. I mean, I, I remember thinking in September, October, how strange that must be in the middle of a mm -hmm. pandemic to think about who you're going to live with next year when you haven't even got through your first year in a time of COVID. I mean, that's just yeah. odd. Yeah. So, so I was really concerned about them. Children in particular um, have, I think, borne the brunt of it for multiple different reasons. So mm -hmm. one of them, education. There is absolutely no doubt that children have lost out on lots of interactions. I don't agree with the catch-up narrative that's being floated around academia at the moment. I think that's really damaging to children to tell them that, you know, they're a COVID generation and they're going to be lost forever in the abyss of the world. Um, I think that's just not helpful for anybody. But I also think the children have missed out developmentally as well. You know, there's lots mm. of different experiences that they haven't had in those formative early years. So I think there's gaps and I think there are problems. But what I would say is that those were there before the pandemic too. Mm. And so they've just broadened. So what we need to think about is that if they're a gap now, um, sorry, if they were a gap beforehand and they're going to be a problem going forward, then, you know, what, what do we want to create in terms of the way that we support those people and systems in order for them to thrive even more so one of the things i talk about quite a lot is therapeutic communities so we need to think about you know actually how do you raise a child in the community in our country at the moment well we used to have lots of childcare settings and lots of places where young parents could go and interact and get support and all of those things it didn't used to be the fact that you'd have to rely on family all the time there were things that were there to support you the students in particular one of the things I think that a lot of people have missed out on is just that ability to um, not just meet people, but also explore who you are as well, because that's what a lot of people go to university for, don't they? They try to find, you know, like-minded, but also different people, um, and they try to find out where they fit in the world and what they think and all of those things. And I think that's been really impaired this year, but I, I think we should be very hopeful as well, because what I also think is that people adapt very quickly and you know, I remember a day where I was sitting with all of these existential problems in the world. And I, I went into a, I went onto a school site um, that, that I go to regularly. And it's a people referral unit where there's lots of different children who are outside of mainstream school. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, how are we going to support these kids and get them back into education? Um, and I saw one of them for the first time for about six months. Um, and he was nine years old and he just wanted to tell me about his imaginary big purple dog. That was the thing he was most concerned about. Um, you know, COVID's going on, but, you know, all he cares about is, is and I'm not saying that there won't be people who are finding it hard. Of course there are. And we know that, you know, poverty and you know, stress on families and all of those things is really compounded. But I also think that people will probably surprise us as well, um, both children and young people. 
I have a lot of faith in young people. I think they're extraordinary and I think they will continue to do extraordinary things. But we need to give them the support and the right environment in which they can thrive. Absolutely. Yeah. So what about what about this? Um, I'm sure you've come across it, this post-pandemic stress disorder that's been proposed. You're smirking around. I know exactly what you think about. Um, but yeah, it's sort of been proposed in a number of different places. And, and, but these sort of, I guess what we're experiencing are very like understandable reactions to abnormal, difficult circumstances. So can we really call whatever happens to people after a pandemic a, a medical problem? Can we, you know, what are your thoughts on that? This is, this is where I take a deep breath. <laughs> um, I, uh, as you will know, um, I am quite anti um, uh, pathologizing people's experiences. And, and, you know, I should explain when I talk about pathologizing people's experiences, I mean trying to place it in the realm of illness and trying to say that it's something wrong with somebody rather than what's happened to them. Um, so I think the whole premise of the question is post pandemic disorder a thing. I think that all, if you, if you put it alongside post-traumatic stress, okay, so post-traumatic stress disorder, it's called. So it depends very much whether you buy that PTSD is actually definitely something wrong with somebody. And the answer for me is absolutely not. How can you call something post-traumatic disorder when actually it's a reaction that's happened yeah. as, as, you know, because as a result of something that's happened to somebody, not because there's anything genetically disposed. So I, yeah. I, I get quite cross about that. So I always call it post-traumatic stress because understandably after yeah. an event, people adapt, they change, you know, both physically, biologically, and, and also psychologically. So in terms of post-pandemic, no, I think it's another way of the messaging, which has been so harmful, telling people that there's something wrong with them. Now, I want to come, you know, I want to be clear. I'm not anti-diagnosis. I'm pro-choice. I like people to have a choice over how they understand themselves and what's happened to them and, and form a narrative. So post-pandemic post disorder is just another example, I think, of where we've gone, how can we frame this in an easy way? Oh, let's call it this because other people will be able to find commonality and say, oh, it's not just me. I, I'm struggling with that too, rather than go, look, this is really hard on everybody and there'll be loads of different ways that, that you've had to adapt, like you said, George, to very abnormal circumstances, which many of us have never come across before. And even those that have come across it before also find it very difficult. Um, how can we best describe that? Well, to me, I think describing it in that way just means that people feel less hopeful and also feel that there's something wrong with them when in fact... They've had to endure something, which is, you know, possibly once in a generation. Um, I, I, I spoke to um, somebody who lived in Syria um, just at the time where, where things were getting, you know, very, very um, volatile. And fortunately, they were able to get out. Um, and they now work in the health service, and, um, and, and they're wonderful. And I was speaking to her at the start of the pandemic, and she said to me, I, I was, it was unbelievable. I wish I'd written it down, because everything she said to me at the start in terms of what would happen to people, how they would cope, um, you know, what we would find that we would experience when you feel like you're living in something which is really contained and really tight and where you feel physical threats um, and, you know, also imaginary threats, you know, not because it's in your mind, but because you can't see it. Um, you know, when, when, what would happen to you when you experience all of those? 
um, and she was absolutely spot on. She nailed it. Um, and so when we think about it, people's safety has been invaded on a mass level on, on to such a point where you're you're worried about stepping outside, you're worried about interacting, all of those things. So for me, people's reactions make complete sense given the context they're experiencing. And if you think about it, you know, OCD as, as a label, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, very serious and, and lots of people find it extremely difficult and distressing, no doubt. But if you think about it, you know, a lot of people now are displaying symptoms that outside of a pandemic, we would be going, oh, I wonder if they've got, if they've got that. But now, because of the context they're operating in, it makes complete sense for them to be concerned about hygiene and all of those things, doesn't it? You know, if so, you know, are we saying that people who were cleaning their shopping at the start of the pandemic because they're worried about, you know, the virus and they're worried about spreading it and, you know, and, and transmitting, are we saying that they're mad and that there's something wrong with them? You can't. So I think context is really, really important. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks, George, for um, making me rant about that. <laughs> uh, I am. Um, I, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's just it's bizarre, isn't it, that, you know, the, the reason that humans are where we are today is because we adapt and we adapt really, really well. But then when people adapt now, you know, now in, in a really sort of modern complex world, it's all of a sudden there's, there's an illness, there's something wrong with them. And yeah, I just think that's... that's I, I, th I think you're really right. Way. And what it comes down to for me is it, it's about giving people a way to find meaning and understand themselves. I've got no doubt, right, if you look in America, Okay, huge, huge amount of loss, significant to unbelievable amounts. Um, and, you know, that's playing out in places like India, Brazil, you know, and we've had a huge, significant loss here. What people need is they need a narrative and they need moments in which to validate and mark their experience. And sadly, the only validation and way to mark the experience is with, you know, things that are put out, you know, around post-pandemic post disorder. It, one of my friends said to me, I remember in America, um, without getting political, that the night before the inauguration of, of the new president, they had that memorial where they lit up down um, uh, in a place in Washington, I can't remember what it's called, um, close to the monument, and they, and they had that memorial. And it, they marked a moment for people to validate the, the loss that they'd experienced collectively as a country. And, and a lot of people, including my friend, said, you can't, I can't tell you how basic and how validating it was for somebody you know leading our country to go this happened and we're really sorry it happened and it's really hard but you know hope's on the way there's lots of things that we're going to do to market I, I just think if we had more things like that um that validated people's experiences without saying there's something wrong with you yeah i think we would get a little bit further but i'd just lastly say in terms of narrative when i sit down and explain to people you know, when you're able to make the links between something that's happened to you and the way that you now cope and the way you've adapted, when you help people make those links for them, they don't always need a label to go to. And, th mm -hmm. and that's not, you know, sometimes they do and sometimes they find it very useful. But I think in terms of mental health, you know, we see it this week, Mental Health Awareness Week. Mm -hmm. and, and all we see sometimes are lists of symptoms. Yeah. You know, actually, this is what depression looks like. This is what this looks like. And let's be honest, the majority of people who feel those ways often find that they don't even fit into those. They, they feel a mixture of lots of different things. Mm -hmm. So we need to be really mindful that actually what we're trying to do here is give people a humanizing message and say to people what happened to you and the way that you've adapted in order to cope 
makes sense. And I'll just tell you a very, very 10 second story. Well, it's not 10 seconds, 520. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember meeting a child who used to used to squint and used to and used to and used to tick all the time. Um, and, and what we and there were loads of different things that were happening for him. And there was multiple different diagnostic criteria. He probably would have ticked, and in fact, he did tick. But eventually, what we found out, and this only happened years later, was that he found it very difficult to adjust to light and would find it difficult because he actually would would be in a room for the majority of the time where it was extremely, extremely dark. So he found it difficult to be exposed to light. But we had no idea. Um, and he didn't necessarily, you know, that light bulb didn't go, um, shouldn't use that phrase, that penny didn't drop for him um, until much later on. So I, I just don't, I just think that when we understand the context, it makes sense instead of jumping to it being something wrong with someone. I'm particularly interested in what you think universities can be doing. Um, sorry to put you in a position that you might not want to say, because uh, I think we're all <laughs> sort of thinking various things. And what, what, one thing that actually struck me was the Bristol Tab, the student newspaper, released an article, I think it was today, um, basically around the narrative of, you know, this kind of reach out if you need, my door is always open, I'm here if you need to talk kind of thing and um, how actually that's kind of been the response to um, some of the difficulties we faced at, at, at university and we're sort of still placing the onus on people in need to reach out aren't we so what do you think you know I guess we as individuals but also you know, universities can be doing better could could they be doing more the answer is yes, yes. <laughs> And I, yeah, and I, I agree with you entirely. The, the problem with placing the onus on people to uh, to solve their own problems is that we presume that everybody has the ability to do that. And mm. I don't mean that in a patronising way. I mean that you need lots of different things in order to be able to feel ownership over what's happening. You need people around you. Um, you know, you need the right environment, you need a certain amount of financial resource, all of those things. So, you know, I always talk about the fact that when we talk about resilience, we always think about it lying individually within somebody. When, of course, we know that resilience is all about us. It's about each other. It's about relationships, all those things. So the one thing that universities could do, and I've said this for a very long time, is we need to start meeting people where they're at. And we need to presume that actually the processes that we think are simple are very overwhelming for people. So one of the things that you will know that I regularly do is that if somebody's finding something difficult, I need to catch up with them, or if they just want to think out loud, I won't invite them to come and sit in a room with me and articulate how difficult things are. We'll try and go out for a walk. We've had to do it with COVID anyway, but that's normal practice for me anyway. And there are lots of people that practice that way. So meeting people where they're at and also being visible. I could send an email to, to 100 students tomorrow most of whom will never have met me. I can say, I'm always here if you need to chat. Well, most people wouldn't know who I am and I've got no idea why I'm here, what I'm like, any of those things. So you need to put a face to those those messages. Mm. The other thing that I always talk about um, in, in, this, in this notion is, you think about GPs, right? Mm. To go to the GP and say that, you know, I'm finding things difficult. There are loads of different things you need to do. You need to ring up student health and want to get an appointment. Um, and, you know, you need to be aware that obviously I might not get an appointment on that day and you know, there's various different things you've got to do. And then you've also got to think about sitting in the room with people and articulating what the problem is. Mm -hmm. So the very the thing I always do is say, 
we should not presume that people are able to articulate how difficult things are for them. We need to give them language, we need to give them words. So yeah. I, for example, will write down things that they can say before they go into the room. I'll sit mm -hmm. down and say, you know, let's think about what you're going to say. And if you can't say it, you can show them. But we also need to think about that in terms of our messaging too. So one of the things that um, I, I, I did at university the other week was we put on an event for people where they could come and drop in. But what we understood was that prior to that drop-in day, we also needed to have gone out into different people's accommodation. You know, we obviously didn't physically walk in COVID, um, but, you know, actually go out to those places, drop into people's um, uh, online lectures, talk to them about it and say, this is what it looks like. This is how it works. And even then, we're still not going to get a huge amount of numbers straight away because people are preoccupied with COVID. They've got a lot on their plate. So we need to think about the long-term picture. One more thing I would say the universities really need to do, and this is important to me, is instead of putting the onus on people to reach out, is that they should build systems that are easier to navigate and that they should understand that people don't all need the same thing. We've, we're very uniformed, and I do understand it because, you know, it's a big organisation. You've got a lot of people. There need to be certain processes. That's fine. But you know what? Not everyone's going to want to go to the GP. Not everyone's want to go, going to go and talk to their tutor. Some people might want people like yourselves who are peer-based. Some mm -hmm. people might want to make sure that they're not talking to a student on the same course as them. So we need to try and build that difference into the system. And for me, that's where I think people with living experience can play a huge, huge role because they get what it's like to be there. And they also know how to have those difficult conversations because they've been there themselves. So bringing that difference into a standardised system, I think, is crucial. But we've got a lot of work to do, a huge amount of work. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, one of the salient points in this tab article I mentioned was that, you know, going back to your point about symptoms and diagnoses and things, there's a, a list of, you know, um, on, the, on the university's wellbeing website, there's a list of um, symptoms you might be getting if you're feeling low or, you know, anxious, depressed. And, and a lot of them are like social withdrawal, you know, not feeling like you want to speak to people. And then at the bottom, there's a button that says, so click here if you want, it, you, you want support. And it's just, a, it's just mad. You know, I, I, I don't see how that's in any way going to be effective. But I think it's time to let you go, Mike. But, <laughs> But thank you so much for, um, for that. I, th I think you know, that's been incredibly insightful, as always, as expected. Um, yeah, and um, I'm sure we could go on all evening, but thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for coming.